podcast about. A podcast where we get together on a fortnightly basis, talk about a random topic, see if we can figure out what our podcast is about. My name, as always, is Keith Ramsey, one of your hosts. Today I am joined by Matthew Grace. Hello. And Peter Aikman. Hey. So, uh, we're getting to the end of the year, guys. Our, this is our last official episode for the year. We do have a bonus episode that'll be coming out on New Year's. And you guys most likely just listen to the one that came up for Christmas at this point. Yep. So, I don't know why I'm saying, yeah, I don't speak for our audience. <laughs> Are you sure you do quite a bit? <laughs> uh, that's fair. I do like to interject on their behalf. I'm sure that will end in a couple days when I immediately alienate all the audience as a prediction for what's going to happen during our New Year's episode. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have already recorded that one because we wanted to keep this episode clean. And we didn't want to affect other things because yeah. we're gonna we're gonna need a break from <laughs> podcasting for maybe maybe a three weeks. probably because uh, we're recording together as three friends at the moment. <laughs> who knows if we'll still be friends when we're before that? Let's just, let's just have our friendly conversations about what's inspired over the last time since we were last recorded an episode. Yep, absolutely uh, nothing. Nothing. Are you guys sure? Because a lot uh, of stuff did happen. Uh, no, sorry, I was questioning Matt on his claim of nothing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Because uh, there was a little something called the Disney Investor Meeting that happened, and by God, did we get some announcements. Oh? I missed out on that happening. Let's hear about it. So first off, they announced, like, it was all the different branches of Disney. So Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars, like, they all, N- National Geographic. We don't really care about that one that much, though. But Speak for yourself. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> but anyways, there was a lot of announcements of things moving forward. For example... Uh, for the Pixar announcement, the one that stood out for me is we're getting a movie uh, called Lightyear. Which is, oh, I did hear about that one. It's the origin story to Buzz Lightyear. Not the not, toy, oh, but the, the space commander. Oh. No, not even, like, a real man who the toy... So the toy is based off of an action movie, and the action movie is based off of the real person. Uh, so we're getting the story of the real person. Okay, real in Toy Stories canon, not in the real world. Okay. So it's going to be called Lightyear, and I believe it's uh, Chris, uh, Chris Evans. Yeah, it's Chris Evans. Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. I certainly hope we get, I guess, the origin of the catchphrase to infinity and beyond. Most likely. Like, it's used just once in the movie in some epic scene. I have a feeling it'll come at the end of the movie, uh, as like kind of like Avengers Assemble came at the end of fucking mm. Marvel Phase 4. Uh, so I have a feeling to infinity and beyond will be something else, say, just as the screen has to black. Where are you going to go now? To infinity and beyond. He blasts off into outer space. Uh, and other news as well. Star Wars made quite a few announcements. So it looks like with Disney Plus TV shows are trying to set up something like what they have with the Marvel MCU. Which all takes place in the same era roughly as the Mandalorian. Because we're going to be getting an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie. Uh, which has been confirmed to have Hugh McGregor and Hayden Christensen come back. Yep. Uh, we have... Oh. I was going to say, I believe we also got an uh, announcement about the Book of Boba Fett. Which is going to be another Disney Plus series about Boba Fett's life. So that actually wasn't announced at the investor meeting. It was, that was on the 10th. And then the season finale of The Mandalorian came out, which hinted at it. Fair. Hmm. Uh, but it's another thing that has been... And they did the classic Star Wars thing of end credit scene and Boba Fett will return in the book of Boba Fett. So Star Wars is stealing from Marvel now. Yep. Uh, we got a confirmation of a series called Bad Batch, which is about a bunch of clones. Nice. And uh, the one I'm the most excited for, because I was the most excited for Rogue One, and they announced this, they're doing a Rogue Squadron movie, uh, TV Ooh, series. Ooh, that actually Ooh. does sound pretty good. Uh, so for those that don't know, Rogue Squadron is a series of books. It's the X-Wing unit that essentially Luke belongs to. They were Red Squadron, 
and then became Rogue Squadron because a lot of them just died, and Wedge is kind of the main character. Unfortunately, I don't think we're getting much Wedge, but I'm still looking forward to it, because I've always, in Star Wars, it might be weird, but I've always enjoyed the space fighter combat stuff, oh, more so than most of the universe. And then finally, the big announcements. So Marvel kind of just cleared everything out. Uh, so we got an announcement. Ant-Man uh, movie is going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Ooh. Cassie Lang will be returning as uh, Ghost? the older person. Oh, the older person. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the villain is going to be Kang the Conqueror. Oh, I love Kang the Conqueror. Uh, we got two announcements regarding the galaxy. Uh, so regarding galaxy, we're getting I Am Groot, which is going to be a miniseries of baby Groot going on adventures. Okay. We're also going to get the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Next holiday. So that's oh going to be 2021. God. I'm going to be honest. Historically, space movie holiday specials have not always turned out well. So I don't know what to think of this one just uh, yet. But to be fair, James Gunn is doing this one. Okay. Then that's a better sign than George Lucas doing it. Uh, we got an announcement of a new character being introduced to the universe through Disney+. Plus, and that is going to be Ironheart. Okay. Uh, so that's the person who kind of is the spiritual successor to Tony Stark in the comics. Okay. Mary Williams ends up uh, making her own Iron Man armor based off the Tony Stark stuff and kind of becomes the new Iron Hero armor. I see. We also got an announcement that Don Cheadle is going to get his own spinoff, which is called Armor Wars. It looks like they're doing the extremist storyline, but with him instead of Tony Stark, because Tony Stark's dead. So Tony's died and his technology gets in the wrong hands and it's up to... Uh, War Machine to kind of protect the legacy of Tony Stark. I like that. We also got two pretty crazy announcements that I don't think anyone was expecting. So we got an announcement that Samuel Jackson uh, as Nick Fury and uh, Telos from the Captain Marvel movie are going to be returning in a Secret Wars TV show. Secret Invasion, I mean. Okay. Uh, Less exciting, but still exciting. Secret Invasion. So it's going to follow the plot of another faction of Skrulls who have infiltrated Earth and them trying to hunt them down. And... Fantastic Four was announced. Yep. Again? And the director of Fantastic Four is the person who did Spider-Man 2. Okay. So, is, are they rebooting it again? Is this going to yeah. be... Yes. Okay. This is the three boot. We're just kind of moving past it, right? Now, I've also skimmed through quite a few things. They made a lot of casting announcements about a bunch of the other series that are existing, such as uh, uh, Miss Marvel, uh, Moon Knight, so on and so forth, She-Hulk. They made all those announcements. For example... They did 100% confirm that the events of WandaVision go right into Doctor Strange 2. And Doctor Strange 2 is also going to have America Chavez appear. Okay. So there's a lot of big announcements happening that are kind of setting up the universe going forward. Uh, As for the thing about the reboot, it looks like with what's going on with Spider-Man, they're very much setting into that all the other Marvel stuff we've seen pre the MCU is part of the canon, but in different universes. Especially if what's speculated about the Spider-Man movie is going to be correct which is going to be a Spider-Verse movie that's going to show that there's a bunch of different connecting things. And WandaVision and Doctor Strange might be doing that as well. Okay. And they're finally bringing the uh, multiverse into the MCU from what it looks like. All right. Just in case they decide to slash some of them and continue with others. Yeah. But uh, essentially, Phase 4 officially starts with WandaVision, which comes out January 15th. So I am very much looking to that starting. We had a full year without, Dis- uh, without Marvel, essentially. It was it was it was a rough year, I'll be honest. But twenty twenty one, it's it's going to be yeah. different. It's a marvel that we made through it. I I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm confident enough to say that twenty twenty one will be different. I hope it'll be different, but who knows what'll happen. Uh, the thing I'm looking forward to is because uh, some of you listening might have noticed that we did do uh, our predictions of Phase Four. 
once that starts getting on the way, I kind of want to go back and listen to it, and then maybe we should revisit and see oh, how we got Oh, I things. definitely think we should end up doing a recap of that and seeing what we were right about and what we were wrong about. So we already mentioned that the final episode of The Mandalorian uh, was released. I would say overall as a whole, the second season has been quite enjoyable. I was a little bit disappointed with the ending Same. of... Yes. It was a right. very disappointing ending. Thank you. I, like, there were so many people online being like, oh, the perfect ending. I'm like, no, it's not. It was cool, but disappointing. Yeah. Uh, there were better ways they could have done it. They could have brought in more characters to the fucking more popular front of Star Wars. Instead of just trying to tie it back to the Skywalker story. But Which is always, I find that's where a lot of like the extra media kinds of fails. It always feels the need to tie back to the Skywalker. But at the same time, when Baby Yoda reached out to someone in the Force, I'm like, given this time frame, there's really only one person who is guaranteed to sense him. Yeah. Uh, my biggest issue with this, though, is we know from the novelizations of uh, The Last... Or no, The Rise of Skywalker, that Luke's first Padawan was Ben Solo at the age of 10, which is six years after Mandalorian takes place. And uh, fat, fuck it, Matt and also all of our fans who haven't watched Mandalorian yet, I apologize. Fans, you have less of an excuse because at this point it's been like a week <laughs> and, and a half. I've some time code things here, so this is probably going to be our last thing before we get into the episode, so just look at that and then just skip ahead to yeah. that part. Uh, Matt, I'm apologizing, but honestly, you, it's your own fault for not yeah. being up to date on pop culture things. So the person who Grogu reached out to through the forest to train him was Luke Skywalker. So Luke Skywalker came in to take him in as a Padawan. My biggest issue with that is now he's taking Grogu on as a Padawan. Also, Grogu is Baby Yoda's name. I, I already okay, heard about that. All right. So yeah, uh, he's taking Grogu. Also, Yoda died. Also, yeah, Yoda died. Uh, <laughs> so did Yaddle. In the original trilogy. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he takes Grogu on as his Padawan, makes a big deal about how he has to be trained, and there's this big emotional scene of Mandalorian passing off Yoda, uh, Baby Yoda slash Grogu. My biggest issue with that is, as I've stated, this takes place six years before, uh, Luke starts his academy and starts training Padawans, and it's explicitly stated in the novelization of The Rise of Skywalker that Ben Solo is his first Padawan at the age of ten, which is, yeah, six years after this happens. So they're just straight up changing fucking canon at this point. Unless for some undisclosed reason he decided to keep teaching Grogu a secret. Yeah, because it's it, this wasn't the final to the Mandalorian. There's going to be more Mandalorian, but they said it's going to take place after the Book of Boba Fett. Yeah. So, so we're probably going to get like a time skip where he comes back and Grogu's a bit older. But it, it's... It hasn't ruined... Like, it's nowhere near ruining the series or anything like that. It's just... It was just an anticlimactic ending. Yeah. It was a disappointing thing because, as we talked about when we actually did our episode on season one of The Mandalorian, the big issue with a lot of Star Wars stuff is that they keep trying to tie it back to the Skywalker story, trying to raise the stakes. One of the things we really enjoyed about this, or one of the things I really enjoyed about it at the very least, was the fact that they allowed it to be its own thing and allowed it to stand on its own legs. Like, one of the things that I found super phenomenal about this second season specifically is through the original trilogy and all of the mainline movies... TIE Fighters are, like, such a non-existent threat. They're, like, flies to be swatted. The Mandalorian has made TIE Fighters the most terrifying fucking thing. Anytime they show up, you know the stakes are immediately raised by, like, ten times. Uh, so, I don't know. I was just a little bit disappointed when they tried to tie it back to the Skywalker story. That is my thoughts on The Mandalorian. I'll stop talking about it now, I promise. 
So I guess that means we're ready to get into our main topic for today. So we're going to be talking about the very controversial Christmas movie, or not Christmas movie, depending on who you ask, Die Hard. First Die Hard. Before we start fighting about this... Can we all three of us agree on one thing, which is that this is a fantastic movie? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah definitely. Okay, good. It's We've... definitely a trend-setting action movie that changed a lot of the tropes, uh, as we'll talk about through the, just discussing the plot specifically. But it's very debated because some people debate that this is a Christmas movie, while others debate that it's not. I, myself, am personally completely neutral. I do not care either way if it is a Christmas movie or not, but I can see both arguments. Given that, I'm pretty sure we already stated our opinions on this a year ago when we were talking about... Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, we can just come out and say, Matt is very pro-It's a Christmas movie, I'm very anti-It's a Christmas yeah. movie. Like, I can also see the arguments as to why people would consider it to not be a Christmas movie, but I'm in the camp that it is a Christmas movie. I so. can see the arguments people would make for why it is, I just think those arguments are dumb. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the movie itself, just on its own, and then at the end I'm going to let you guys fight it out, and I'll mediate. And then I got a little something to test how good you are at gauging if something's a Christmas movie or not. Alright, so... Is it a... Game? Like a off-brand Peter game? Who knows? Well, if it is... Well, I don't like calling it an off-brand Peter game, because that just makes Keith sound like off-brand Peter. And I don't agree with that assessment. I'm the original. Well, regardless, I already don't like this, because we have a history of me losing these games. (laughs) That's true. Oh, this game does not test your facts whatsoever. Alright, so. Open on. John McClane on a plane. Looking slightly uncomfortable. Flying into Los Angeles. Uh, this is where we get one of the defining story beats, which is the man sitting next to him on the plane explains that the best way to deal with jet lag is when you get to where you're going, you take your shoes and your socks off, and you ball your toes up into fists while standing on carpet. <laughs> and make fists and with your toes. And it'll perfectly fix any jet lag you're experiencing. And according to, uh, John McClane, a couple scenes later, it works. This is so funny, too, because, like, it's probably one of the funniest back and things. Like, trust me, I've been doing this for nine years. And he gets up, and he sees clearly, like, and this is what really takes him as, like, well, it was a different time back in, like, the 80s, where he's got a gun holstered when he was sitting on the plane. Yeah. Like, I sees like, he starts panicking. He's like, don't worry, I'm a cop. Trust me. I've been doing it for 12 years. Yeah. He's like, oh, okay. As, so, as if that made him any more comfortable with the situation. Also, then he pulls the fucking giant-ass teddy bear out of the overhead compartment. <laughs> yeah. I... That is probably one of my favorite parts of this, is they introduce the idea of the giant teddy bear, and then never have it pay off at all. I would argue that it pays off in some ways. Oh, it pays off in the few scenes that it does show up. Also, uh, we know, as we find it later on, he has two children, his daughter and his son, and he's got one teddy bear. Yeah. So, some would argue that this movie has a big arching plot of him trying to reconcile his relationship with his wife, and then... They just never address the fact that his kids play any role in this, except for fucking up stuff later. Yeah, uh, so, it's introduced fairly <clears throat> fairly early on that he has a difficult relationship with his family, given that we overhear a conversation between his daughter and his mother on the phone, where his daughter is asking whether or not uh, Daddy is going to make it home for, or not make it home, but come for Christmas, whether he was going to be there. And then she was unsure because no one had called, or he hadn't called ahead to say he was going to be there, so. They weren't sure on the specifics. Yeah. And as we get just a little further into the movie, we learn that his wife, Holly, had moved to Los Angeles to take a new job position while John McClane stayed back where he was to continue working as a police officer in his jurisdiction. Yeah, all this fun stuff gets explained by, uh, I guess, exposition machine, Argyle, yes. the limo driver. Yes. Well, that, 
gets explained and then also reinforced when he gets to the Nakatomi Towers, the building where this whole movie takes place. Yeah. Where he searches the computer directory for who his wife should be, Holly McLean, but instead she's going by her maiden name, Gennaro. Which, uh, th- this is the weirdest exchange, too, because he's talking to the security guard, and he's like, oh, pretty high-tech toy guy out here. And he's like, yeah, and if you have trouble pissing, I'll help you find your zipper. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> what kind of comment is that? It's like, sure, I get it's high-tech for this time, but... Really? Also, another sign of how different the times were, and that they had a security guard who helped you find people in the building without having any clue who you are. He walked in with a gun, said he was looking for someone, and he was like... Yep, there's their name. It'll tell you exactly where to find them and when they'll be alone. It's just like, they'll be the take the express elevator right up. It's yeah. a Christmas party. Yep, they're the only people in the building. Yeah. Only people in the building. They're up there. I'm stuck here because I'm a security guard and a party's going on. It's just, that movie could not be made today because there'd be so many questions. Why was he allowed a gun on the plane? Why didn't the security guard oh, harass yeah. him even slightly for trying to go up there? It's definitely a product of the times. Yeah. Uh, so yes, he goes up to a party. During this time, we're also introduced to Holly's uh, co-worker, Ellis, who's just scum. Snorting back some cocaine. Oh, doing like multiple bumps of cocaine. <laughs> Which is the funniest thing, too, because when he meets uh, Takagi, and he's like giving him the tour, he's like, okay, I'll take you to the office. And they get to Holly's office, and he's sitting there doing coke. And it's like, this is Holly's husband? Holly's cop? Hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> the best part is like... He clearly saw and acknowledges it because he points towards the desk and says, you missed some, pointing to remnants of cocaine still on the desk. <laughs> but yes, uh, at this point, John McClane makes a throwaway joke about how Japanese people don't celebrate Christmas, to which Takagi explains, oh, we may not have won Pearl Harbor, but we won the war of selling you tape decks, so that's something <laughs> to celebrate. And also, we're we multi- really won in the end. Yeah, we're multicultural. We'll, we do things. Well, then Ellis also explains that this party is less of a Christmas party and more of a celebration of a great sale that Holly made earlier that day. Which is weird, because does that mean she made the sale and then they planned the party and had it the same day? Or did they know she was going to make the sale that day and planned ahead and It's just like party? a situation where like, she makes the sale and it's like, shit, we need to celebrate this, but like it's Christmas Eve and things are going to be closing. How do we get people to stay no. in the building and actually have security? No, uh, I, fuck, it's a Christmas party. I don't yeah. know. No, I bet they had the plan and works because she was working on the sale for a while. But they were banking on the fact that the sale would go through. <laughs> and Christmas was just a fallback plan. Like, yeah. and if, just, the, if, the, if the sale sales, fails, then, then fuck like, it, we all just have a Christmas like, party. Oh, we have all the supplies and there's no reason to celebrate anymore? Uh, it's Christmas. Yay. <laughs> and these are kind of like the main players. We got Holly, Takagi, Alice, uh, Ellis, and John McClane. And then we start getting the introduction of... Argyle. Can't forget Argyle, Willemar Driver. He's kind of there, but he's like, he, a, he's he, like important for two scenes. He's important for the beginning and end of the movie and yes. nothing in the middle. And one, one little bit in the middle. I don't know. that Towards the end. Yeah, I'm bit. counting that as okay. the end part that he's... And then uh, at this point we also get the introduction to the terrorists led yes. by Hans Grimmer, played by Alan Rickman, which one of his best roles, I might say. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the one thing I noticed, I, I don't know why I never noticed this before. But Ode to Joy gets played a lot in this movie. Yes, yes absolutely. And it's not just Ode to Joy itself, but they have variations depending on the scene. For example, when uh, he's getting off the plane at the beginning, John McClane, it's, you know, kind of like a Jingle Bell rendition of it, where it's just the bell shaking the song. Yeah. But then when Hans Gruber comes in, it's like a really dark piano, like slow version, yep. as the truck's driving up. My favorite use of Ode to Joy, though, uh, cutting ahead a little bit, I'm not going to explain the scene at all. But there's a point where FBI agents are like, oh, the terrorists are probably shooting their pants now. And then it just cuts the terrorists 
while it's playing the most jaunty and upbeat version of Ode to Joy. <laughs> yeah. So yes, we're introduced to the terrorists. Uh, this is happening while John McClane is testing his foot fist on carpet yeah, technique. Him and his wife got into a little bit of an argument, so he's alone in uh, their apartment room while his wife went back to the party. So this is one of the things where I was talking about that John McClane is, in this movie itself, is kind of like the shifting of tropes when it comes to action heroes. So up to this point, action heroes tend to be the cold, heartless killing machines that they just go in guns a blazing, don't really care about anything else as long as they're killing the bad guy. You and, didn't need to emphasize with heroes before that. This is the first one that, like, really made you emphasize with yeah, the, like, protection. By today's standards, she's not really, you know, that relatable, I would say. But, like, it holds up to a fact, like, you can still kind of understand where he's coming from. And he even acknowledges he's making mistakes, like, when he gets to that little argument with his wife. Because, as we find out, he has a bit of an anger problem. <laughs> yeah. And he specifically says that he came over to Los Angeles to try to fix mistakes that he's made. And just try to get together for the ha- holidays and have Yeah, a happy and he cares time. about the people that are in danger. He's trying to save them. But, he, like, stuff does happen. And yeah, he and he's one of, more focused on his job than he should be. I think one of the biggest efforts and had probably the biggest payoff towards them making him more of a relatable character is the fact that he talks to himself. Like, characters talking to themselves oh, yeah. is not the most relatable thing, but he specifically... <laughs> for yourself. He talks to himself in such a way that anytime you, like, question why he's doing something, he, like, explains his thought process out loud to himself so that the audience can understand why he's doing the things mm-hmm. that yeah. he's doing. Uh, there's a scene after the terrorists end up taking the building and John escapes from the room and he forgets his shoes and most of his stuff. Uh, he goes up to one of the higher floors and sees that they're interrogating Tagagi to get the passcode for one of the things. This helps them, but it's not required because they have a genius hacker with them. And Takagi ends up like, I don't have the information, just have to kill me. And he shoots him, and then John sees this, runs for it, and that's when they realize, oh, there's another person in the building. And afterwards, he's talking to himself, like, why didn't you save him, John? You could have saved him, he was right there, because he'd be dead, asshole! <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's a perfect example of him kind of explaining his own logic throughout the movie. Because it happens repeatedly, that's the most iconic moment, but there are multiple times of him talking to himself to explain... Why he's doing the things he's doing. Yeah. So for now, it's him talking to himself while he's trying to figure out how to do things. Until a little later on where he gets a little bit of police involvement. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. Like, his first uh, reaction to dealing with this is not to, guns a-blazing, I have to save everybody. It's, I need to find a way to alert other authorities. Yeah, because yeah. he's a police officer, but he's way out of his jurisdiction. Yeah. So he wants to get some people who can actually do some help. Yeah, so yeah I would say, like, the first act of, like, the post-terrorism part is him just trying different methods to get the authorities involved. His first attempt is he tries to uh, set off a fire detector, or fire alarm, yep. uh, which the security guard has already been replaced, so they just pretend to be the security guard and say, false alarm, don't bother coming out. Once again, another sign of the times, because right now, as it is, I'm pretty sure if an apartment or a high-rise building has a fire alarm go off, the fire department at least has to show up I believe that's always kind of been the fact. <laughs> this is just like, you know. Okay, fair. People not giving a shit. Which also gets exemplified later with his second attempt where he uses the radio to contact the police. Oh, that's... And it's like, this is an emergency stand channel for emergency situations. It's like, does it sound like we're trying to order a fucking pizza? <laughs> yeah, that was a great fucking line. And it's another one of those scenes where he grabs one of the radios from one of the terrorists after he kills one of them. Heads up to the roof for the best reception. And tries to radio in an emergency. To which the police are just not having it. And Until he ends up... Finally... His call gets cut off by a blaze of gunfire from the quote-unquote terrorists. The best part about that 
is she clearly hears the gunfire through the headset because she takes the headset off and she's like, oh, that was so loud. <laughs> you know what we need to solve this? I'm going to send one police officer who's notorious for not pulling his and gun. Like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, just send one person over there just to check on things. The best part is like he checks in and he's like, uh, I'm heading over there now. And she's like, don't worry too much about it. It was probably a prank call. It's like, you heard the fucking gunfire. Why are you so convinced this is a prank call? Also, I want to backtrack here to the one a guy that he kills because there's a lot of good lines here because he's going up looking for him and yeah. because of the radio situation. Uh, well, no, this is before we have this room, This is the firearm situation. Yeah, but he pulls his gun on the guy and tells him to freeze and the guy immediately puts two together. Oh, it's a cop. And his line is like, you won't shoot me. He's like, oh yeah, why not? It's like, you're a police officer. You have rules. And he's like, oh yeah, my chief keeps trying to tell me that. Just punched him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which also, th- this interaction where this guy is trying to like be so like, don't worry, I won't hurt you. And then immediately jumps the box and just starts firing wildly. It's also uh, where one of the most iconic scenes of the movie comes, where he uh, takes the terrorist's uh, machine gun. Then... I think in blood, unless he had access to a red sharpie, but I'm pretty sure it's in blood that's just not smearing. <laughs> it's an off. office building. It's probably supply closet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he writes, sweater, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. And sits him in an office chair and sends him down the elevator to the party. <laughs> Which is, uh, uh, in correspondence to Hans Gruber giving the speech, like, I want no misunderstanding. I have full control of the situation. We are the ones in charge. Elevator opens up, dead guy. <laughs> Well, the weirdest part is he does it in such an elaborate fashion of, like, he rigs up Buddy in the uh, elevator. He then climbs into the elevator, sets it running down to the uh, floor with the office party, stops it halfway between floors, pries the doors open, climbs back out, then uh, closes the doors and allows it to keep going. Why didn't he just, like, push the button and then leave the elevator? Um, he could have did that because, well, i got to say right now that... Uh... The upper floors of the building are under construction. That's why there's, like, no one there and just a bunch of scaffolding and such. And my guess why he did that is probably so he could get easy access to the maintenance tunnels. Because okay. I imagine those doors would be locked. Yeah, but he used it from the other side. Because uh, if you remember when they're oh. getting this thing, he's on top of the elevator. That's right. And I completely forgot that he gets on top of the elevator. That explains everything. My apologies. I'm just a dumb idiot. So, yes, he climbs on top. And that's when he starts finding out some names and using a sharpie to write on his arm the names of the different terrorists so you can keep track of who's alive and who's dead. Making a list. Uh, it's also uh, right around this time that it's the police officer is showing up. Yep. Uh, and it looks like everything's going well for the terrorists at this point. It seems that he's buying it. He's getting ready to leave. And this is also when two other guys end up attacking John and he ends up having to kill them. We get the one guy who's trying to surrender. He's like, while on top of the table saying, huh, you should have killed me when you had the chance. You're never going to make that mistake again. And he's fucking, well, he's antagonizing him. He reloads the fucking gun. Yeah. And then just gets pumped full of lead by John McClane. He's like, hmm, thanks for the advice. Yeah. Uh, also, at this point, we should address uh, the first man that John kills is the brother of the secondary antagonist of this movie. Uh, one of the terrorists who... Um, as soon as his brother is killed, his goal is no longer complete this terrorism mission and get paid. It's to kill. It's this to man. kill John McClane at all costs. To the point where, when the police arrive, uh, when the pl- police officer arrives, uh, he's like hunting him through the halls. And Hans Gruber gets on the radio. and He's like, "Don't shoot him. Just trap him in a room somewhere. We, if there's gunfire, the police officer's gonna hear it. Uh, We're not ready for police intervention yet, so stay quiet." Unfortunately, does not work out that way. Uh, so yes. Police officer names Al. Uh, clearly, like, not super enthusiastic about his job because he, like, 
It's Christmas Eve. He wants to go home. Give some Twinkies to his wife. <laughs> Give us the red flag of my wife is pregnant. Yeah. I'm three days away from retirement. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. He enters the Nakatomi Plaza lobby. Uh, starts walking in to check out the place. We see, like, an angle from, like, around the first corner as you start walking towards the elevator bank. There's uh, one of the terrorists has a gun ready. Uh, and he gets ready to pull it on Al. And then Al's just like, ah, fuck it. Seeing half of the lobby is probably enough to ensure nothing yeah, shady is going on here. It seems fine. It's nice and quiet. It's Christmas Eve. Nothing's going on. So he's like, yeah, I'm just going to leave now. He's like, have a good Christmas to the guy behind the security desk and gets back in his car to start driving away. Yeah, this is when John throws one of the terrorists out and it slams under the hood and then all the terrorists decide, that's the signal, guys! And he's just like, well, shooting the car. Yeah, the terrorist's dead body hits the hood of the police car, which sends Al into a frenzy. He's freaking out, calling for backup, hightailing it out of the parking lot because immediately all of the terrorists at the windows just start to open fire on the police car. Well, of course. The moment a dead body gets thrown through the window, you know more cops are going to come to investigate. Oh, yeah. So their top priority is to kill him before he can radio in and tell them what just fucking happened. But Al ends up getting away and calling for backup. And I kind of want to jump ahead to something. So we have the uh, deputy chief of police that shows up. Oh, this fucking guy. And the thing I love about this, too, is because there's a part where... Because Al and John have been talking for a bit this time, and Al suspects that he's a cop just the way he's talking about certain things. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to convince the, the chief that, oh, the person I'm talking to is one of our guys. He's helping us. And then he's like, I don't trust him. He could be one of the terrorists. Like, well, how do you explain the dead body? I don't know. Stockbroker got depressed and took a step off the ledge. And it's like, wait. We don't, uh, we know there's terrorists in there. He's like, you don't know that. Maybe it was just the guy you were on the radio was shooting at you. It's like, he was shot from multiple fucking machine guns. Also, it clearly wasn't one guy. They clearly There's one out. terrorist that's a prankster in that building and a really depressed uh, guy that's doing stuff. They clearly pointed out machine guns, which, uh aren't typically regulated. They're not hunting rifles or anything. They're not simple sidearms. Well, that, that's here in the U.S. It's very different. True, yes. true. In the U.S., Still. you go to Walmart and you get three for free. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Uh, so, uh, the police start to arrive. At this point, Al also takes out his radio and goes to the frequency that John used earlier to try and contact the police and starts radioing back and forth with them. Also, I want to address something. John McLean uses the radio to contact emergency services. And the way that the police, or not the police, the way that the terrorists catch on to it is as he's radioing the police, uh, the terrorists downstairs hear it on their radios too. But the police specifically say this frequency is for emergencies only. So are the terrorists just using the police emergency frequency for all their terrorist shenanigans? In which case, that's some real fucking oversight on this. So what I think was going on here is terrorists are using their own frequency, but I think that was another radio because it's not all the terrorists. It's the one with Hans Gruber. So I think he was monitoring the emergency line in case anything came through. That, oh, okay. That, that, that would sense. make sense. It wasn't really explained, but it does make yeah, sense. Yeah, I think it's just a contextual thing because it only plays on that one radio, yeah. the emergency conversation. And that's the one that Gru- uh, Gruber has with him and he ends up speaking with the police and John at the right. same time. And they don't ever pick that radio up. Yeah, and it, uh, he's also, then when he's talking to the other people, they're not picking up the information that we see, and neither is John, necessarily. Yeah. So, it's more so... Yeah, and they clue in that he must be on the roof, because that's where he'd get the best signal. Yeah. Uh, we also get, like, some weird shenanigans that go down. So, John McClane does his best to get police to show up to help resolve the situation. As we said, his goal in the beginning is not to kill the terrorists himself, it's to get the proper authorities involved. The moment the proper authorities... Uh, get involved, he's pretty relieved. They then make the plan of breaching the building to get inside to capture the terrorists, to which John's immediately like, no, I've been telling you that these are terrorists, why are you trying to breach the building? It's like, 
But you want them to resolve the situation. What is your end goal here, John? I think, How- he, I think he was wanting a negotiation, which is also a far-fetched thing for an action era. Yeah. Uh, the, the funny thing about this, too, well, is... Well, I think it was more the fact that they were breaching the front door. That's fair. Fair. Uh, but the thing that's interesting about this, too, is... Uh, we forgot to mention, but with the second group of terrorists that he killed... Or, I, well, I don't know why we're saying terrorists, because the whole thing with the mean terrorists is actually a ruse. They're actually just heistmen. They're, oh. they're stealing mm-hmm. bank bonds. That's the thing I wanted to go back to earlier. So, uh, when uh, Takagi is first brought into the kind of room with the terrorists before he's killed... Han- I don't know why I keep calling them terrorists too. The criminals. Hans Gruber explains that he wants to get the $600 million in bearer bonds out of the safe. And Takagi says, what kind of terrorists want money? And Hans Gruber's like, uh, who said we were terrorists? And it's like, your whole deal right now is that you're pretending to be terrorists. Why are you now claiming you're not terrorists? Then later on at the end of the movie, he says, we're not terrorists, we're criminals, uh, we're robbers who are upgrading ourselves from robbers to kidnappers it's just like but you're already a terrorist how are you upgrading to kidnapping <laughs> from terrorism you're already at the highest level you can't go up from there uh, so john ends up getting the uh detonators specifically that they've got a bunch of c4 enough c4 to quote unquote send schwarzenegger into orbit so this becomes kind of like the main reason that they're aside from the one guy who wants to kill him for killing his brother Hans doesn't really give a shit about John because he's just, you know, something that's an issue in the plan, but not a big one. He's but a he cowboy. needs the detonators, and the detonators are the big thing that he needs for his plan to work. Yeah. So that becomes most of the uh, negotiations at this point, uh, to the fact that John at this has C4, charges, detonators, machine guns. Like, he, he's kind of loaded out right now. And this is when the police start trying to get into the building, so they send a SWAT team. And this is where we find out, oh, they do actually have those rocket launchers there for a very good reason. Even though one of those guys ended up fucking dropping the uh, warhead. Yeah. So he drops a rocket, and then as the SWAT team's pulling up in their vehicle to kind of rescue the first guys who tried to breach, they just start repeatedly firing rockets at the, uh... The big armored vehicle that came up. Yeah. So John's plan to deal with this is he puts a lot of charges into one C4, puts it with a computer, and rolls it off into the elevator. Yeah, uh, which causes a massive explosion. Taking I, out the terrorists in the lobby with the rocket launchers. Yeah. I initially took issue to this because it was a very large explosion for a single piece of C4. And then I remembered, there's a whole bunch of fucking rockets right next to the elevator too. So that yeah. probably increased the size of the explosion. Now, a uh, thing that I find funny about this scene too is when all the uh, criminals inside the building are getting ready for the police to go in, there's one guy who gets behind a candy stand. And immediately steals some candy. <laughs> no, but that's not the reason I found it funny. I find it funny because he's there with his gun waiting, and he looks down, he glances, he sees, like, the, the crunch bar, and he's like, hmm. And then what he does is he fucking looks around to see if anyone would notice <laughs> yeah. him stealing the crunch bar. He looks around at his compatriots, and he just slowly reaches under the counter. It's like, man, we may be stealing $600 million slash committing terrorism, but... Stealing I think they'll be upset with me if I steal candy. Stealing candy wasn't on the uh, agenda. <laughs> yeah, because I, I never even thought about that before, but just watching it this last time, I was like, did you just fucking look around to see if anyone saw him steal a candy bar when he's already taken hostages? Uh, so we should also probably address the worst character in the movie who has been introduced at this point, uh, which is the TV reporter who finds out that there's terrorism happening at Nakatomi Plaza, and his first thought is, I gotta get down there with a... TV crew to film this so that I can be the one to report on it. Uh, the people in the building he's working in are not on board with this studio. That's the word. People in the studio are not on board with this. He says, I will fucking steal a van if I have to. I'm going to report on this. 
And they're like, all right, fine, take van number five. Just fucking get out of here. Uh, Even the news people don't want to deal with him. Yeah. He ends up reporting on And he, like, goes out of his way to reveal specific details about John McClane during this fucking event. Because up until now, John McClane, since he was using the radar that the uh, criminals were able to listen in on, he was using that to talk to the police officer, Al. He was using uh, an alias for himself. He was calling himself uh, Roy. Roy Roy Rogers. Now, an interesting thing about this, too, is because before the newscaster ends up fucking up the whole plan, there's a point here where... uh, Ellis gets yes. the bright idea on how to negotiate out of the situation. And this is probably the funniest fucking thing ever. Because he even he fucking says the line, Hans, booby! My well, man! It's hilarious because he starts explaining. He's like, oh, John, you gotta get down here. He's like, what did you tell him, Ellis? He's like, I told him that you're my friend for 20 years and I invited you to this party. Like, you gotta get down here, John. You're my good friend who killed, like, seven other guys. Yes. And then they're, he's like, uh, John, if you, if you don't get down here, they're gonna kill me. <laughs> they're, gonna, they're gonna shoot me in the head. And then he, like, covers their radio. He's, like, snickering to Hans. He's like, I really got him on the ropes. And then Hans pulls out a gun. He's, he's like, like, he put the gun on the table. He's like, ah, oh, Dwight put out the gun. It's radio, not showbiz. I, I'm not a method actor. I got this. This is radio, not TV. Hans, booby, put the gun away. <laughs> and then he takes it and he's like, John, they're gonna kill me. It's like, Ellis, you need to tell them you don't fucking know me. You're going to get yourself killed. The most annoying part about this is the police are obviously listening because it's on the radio. Yeah, and this is how the they find out that John's name is John. Yes. And how uh, the reporter finds out because he's also listening in on the radio. Yeah. The thing I love about this too is that Ellis's final act of defiance essentially is like, I got this can of Coke and I'm going to finish this can of Coke before I die. Yeah. Yep. He starts fucking chugging the glass. So he gets shot in the fucking head and immediately the police are like, what the fuck, John? Why didn't you give the terrorists the detonators? That one guy would have lived if you gave them the detonators and definitely would have died 20 minutes later when they used the detonators to detonate something. Also, I don't know anything about explosions, even though they had that rocket and the detonator, so we're going to assume there's no explosions from this point on. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the plan continues pretty badly for John. Uh, he ends up getting shot at repeatedly. Uh, so, we actually... This is probably one of my favorite things in the whole movie uh, that comes up here is, uh, at this point, Hans kind of has to do stuff from stealth. And this is where we get Hans and John meeting for the first time in person. And yeah. Hans pretending to be Bill Clay, one of the employees of the business. Who snuck away from the party for a smoke, and now he's scared towering up on and, the roof. Th- this is a bit more like a background film thing, because I, I know some things about filmmaking itself. And they use Dutch angles for yes. the, like, the rest yeah. of the scene, where it's the tilted things to make you unnerved, because... We as the audience know that, well, these people are trying to kill each other, and Hans knows who he is, but John, we don't know if he knows who Hans is. And it's mm-hmm. actually really well done, because it shows, like, Hans constantly, like, trying to, like, get to a gun so that he can shoot uh, John McClane, and John's just like, oh, no, don't go back there, come over this way, we gotta stick together if you wanna live. Hans is like, oh, okay. And then John McClane just straight up hands him a fucking gun. Yeah. Uh, and we're like, oh, no, Johnny boy, you've you've done it now. And then we find out that as Han pulls the gun on him and speaks into the radio, telling his friends to get up, friends, co-workers, compatriots, uh, yeah, uh, tells them to come up there to help kill John McClane. John's like, ah, 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 you idiot. And then we find out that the gun that John gave him was actually empty. Uh, John does not use this opportunity to kill Hans, though. Instead, he gets disrupted by bad guys. Yeah, and this is where Hans realizes that he doesn't have shoes, and he tells the rest of the guys, shoot the glass. Yeah. And, uh... This is kind of like another famous thing for the movie of like, you know, 
John taking a beating for this and his feet getting all fucked up in this. And because yeah, like most action movies, like the action hero goes through with maybe a couple scratches, but nothing ever really hinders them. Definitely before this, action heroes were superheroes. Yeah. It's become a bit of a trope to show the action hero suffering wear and tear since yeah. this movie. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's funny about this too is I don't know how notorious you guys know what this feet thing was, but there was a series of diehard video games that came out for like the Nintendo and Super Nintendo, and your health bar was your fucking feet. Oh yeah, I remember hearing about that. <laughs> I have never played these diehard video games, so I was not aware of that. Yeah. Uh, so another thing to address is, at this point, the FBI has shown up to take over the crime scene. Johnson and Johnson. Johnson and Johnson. No relation. Uh, this movie goes out of its way to show that the FBI are really just shitheads in all capacities. But that's the other fun thing, because I think there's some sort of like level of awareness with this, because in any other action movie prior to this, those two would have been the heroes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Whereas in this movie, they're dumbasses who assist the terrorists. Every single action they do makes life easier for the terrorists and worse for John McClane. Because they're running this as a standard terrorist op, and they're running things by, I quote, the book. Which Hans expected. Yeah. So he made his plan entirely around the FBI Showing up to intervene. Yeah, because the last thing in the vault is the electromagnetic lock, which they needed the power cut, but you couldn't cut the power internally because it's a vault built to be around that. So we needed the FBI to show up, and that's why they were pretending to be terrorists, so they'd follow the playbook for that and shut off the whole power grid, thus releasing the lock. Yeah, so... they could drill through all the locks except that last one. So yes, throughout this movie, it's been explained that there are seven locks on this door. The first six they can get through uh, traditional methods. But the seventh lock is an electromagnetic lock that will kick in and refuse to open the door no matter what you do. And the only way to do it is to shut off power, but the power is through the whole building. So you'd have to shut off building power externally to do it. Uh, And it's been this whole thing of Hans explaining that he's going to pull off a miracle uh, and he'll solve it for them. (laughs) Open one big Christmas present, as he puts it. Uh, And then... it's like, gentlemen, you wanted a miracle, I give you a miracle. (laughs) Introducing the FBI. And this is... The best fucking part, because this is what I was talking about earlier, where the FBI are now flying where they're like, oh, the terrorists are probably shitting their pants now that we shut off the power. And it's just yeah. like, cuts to the terrorists grabbing money and singing Ode to Joy. Yeah, yeah. I think the song in the soundtrack is called Joyful Joyful. And it's, yeah, them opening the vault, the light coming out, everyone's all happy. They're yeah, grabbing the terrorists the, have won effectively at this point. They're grabbing the bearer bonds. They are rich. Yeah. They have got what they came for. So, uh, <laughs> FBI have cut power. Terrorists have gotten everything they want, uh, and it's going well for them. At this point, John McClane uh, is starting to wonder, something seems off about this whole plan. Tells Al to fuck off while he thinks about it to himself, uh, and realizes, what the hell was Hans Gruber doing up by the roof? And uh, so, the quote-unquote terrorists get in contact with the FBI. The FBI is like, what are your demands? And they make the typical demands. We're going to send... And then say we're going to send all the hostages up onto the roof where you can pick them up with helicopters and give us a helicopter to escape with also. Yeah. And the FBI like, yeah, sure, why not? And we quickly find it near the climax of the movie that their plan wasn't to do that. They're going to just they're going to raid the building. Them. And one of them says, so I think we can do this with maybe, what, losing 25% of the hostages? And the other guy's like, I can live with that. Once again, showing how much of shitheads the FBI are. Uh, so yes, we get that. We then uh, have John McClane go to check out the roof and discover their whole plan is there's bombs planted all around the roof. And so once the uh, hostages are up there in the helicopters land, they're going to blow the roof. And in the rubble, hopefully the FBI assumes that the terrorists were up there with the hostages. Yeah. 
So everyone's dead, and there's no one to track down what happened with the 600 million barrier bombs. Uh, so. The perfect crime. The perfect crime. John discovers this, realizes that everyone's gone to the roof, and so he has to get people off the roof because it's wired to explode. Because he sees just... So we've seen a single stick of C4 blow up an entire floor of this building, and then we see hundreds of sticks of C4 underneath the roof. Like, it's gonna be big. Yeah. And so, John McClane is up there, and he's shouting at all of the employees of the tower to get off the roof. It's gonna blow up, but no one's listening to him. So he just starts firing off machine gun shots into the air. To which the FBI agents who are on their way up are like, Oh, there's a terrorist! Let's take him out! Uh, to be fair, this is one of the more reasonable deductions they make. They assume he's a terrorist firing on the hostages. I mean, the fact that he's pointing his gun into the sky is not a great sign for them, but it's their least dumb leap in life. I think they were just waiting for an excuse. They <laughs> yeah. could just start shooting. Yeah. I mean, sure. He did manage to coax everyone back inside off of the roof, but the FBI did also start opening up on John McClane, so he had to quickly make his way back inside. However, with them strafing fire, he has no means to get to the stairs back inside. He has to come up with a slightly unconventional way of getting into the building. Which is he ties a hose around himself for an emergency fire. Another trope that has been used a few times in other action movies since. Okay, yep. Yep, and then leaps off the side of the building and crashes into the window below. At this point, John seems to have figured everything out. He seems to be kind of aware of what's going on. And it's just a matter of killing the last now, three people. Now, to be fair people. though, Hans also figured it all out because of a certain newscaster. Who explained that uh, John was there... Or visiting his wife, uh, who he was having troubled times with, puts on the kids... Okay, so this is one of the more fucked up scenes. Is He mm-hmm. goes to the family home of Holly Gennaro uh, and, like, knocks on the door. The, like, lady... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, host- housekeeper. housekeeper. Thank you. The housekeeper who's looking after the kids answers the door. And she's like, no, you can't come in and talk to these kids. And the reporter's like... You let me in, or I'm reporting you to INS, and you're going back to wherever the fuck you came from. Which is already a little fucked up. Uh, He breaks down the door. Well, not breaks down the door. He pushes his way into the home and starts interviewing, is the polite way I'm going to phrase it, uh, the kids. He then grabs the kids, and like it doesn't show this happening, but he puts them into the van, because you see them coming out of the van when they get back to Nakatomi Plaza. So he grabbed children and brought them to the site of a terrorist attack, where the parents were already in danger. So maybe he's just going to make sure all the family dies off at once. I don't understand what his plan is. No one can sue him that way. Fair. Fair, yeah. <laughs> all he cares about is his views. But, uh, yeah, so that's how uh, Hans Gruber realizes, oh, his wife is here at the party. Which is the fun reveal of, like, he turns around, because yeah. he keeps looking at the photos, and she put down the one photo that had him in it at the beginning. He turns around and lifts it up and sees it, it's like... <gasps> yeah, and the way he figures it out is when they're interviewing the kids, you can see Holly getting visibly upset about the fact that her children are on screen. Mm-hmm. And that's how Hans puts two and two together, yeah. and figures they're her, her kids, and since they're also his kids, they're married. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Uh, we then have... Three, four terrorists left. Okay, four terrorists left. One of them is handled by Argyle. The other three... Who spent just, most of the, the event in a, the back of the limo, parked in the underground parking, listening to music on blast and drinking. Because with like, the teddy bear. Because like a bro, he was like he dropped off the John McClane at the beginning, and he's like, okay, yeah, just let me know how things go. If things are good, I'll just drop off all your stuff at the lobby and uh, have someone send them up to the room. 
If not, I'll be here for your to, ride. Yeah, I'll take you to a hotel. Yeah, I'll take you to a hotel after. I'll, yeah, be, I'll he, be your kind of fall guy help assistant. He specifically checked in and was like, do you have somewhere to go if this lover's reunion does not go well? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was super cool of him. So yes, he happens to see the ha- uh, hacker terror. So it's lo- about yeah, it's about this time where he realizes, oh, I'm locked in the parkade, and so he's driving around, sees no exit, and then sees the hacker guy coming out into the van to get the their escape ready. Yeah, so you see him drive an ambulance out of the back of the shipping mm-hmm. truck that they drove into the basement. Like, now that's very suspicious. Uh, he sees him loading it up with valuable goods, and then immediately Argyle does the badass thing of driving into him and T-boning him, and then climbing out of his car and knocking the hacker out in a single punch, making Argyle perhaps the most powerful uh, person in the Die Hard universe. I don't know. <laughs> Using Being a like... single punch to take <laughs> out an enemy. Yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, then we have John McClane killing the last three, uh, which is another badass, iconic scene, which is he has a gun, uh, with no ammo in it, right, except for the amount he used to kill one of the three. He's then out of ammo in it, but Hans Gruber and the other terrorists don't know this, so they point their guns at Holly, and they're like, you put your gun down right now, and slowly, or else your wife dies. He does that, puts his hands behind his head, and grabs a pistol with exactly two bullets, and shoots both Hans and the other terrorists. Because he taped it on his back? Well, it's because they have that little fun moment of, like, he puts the gun down, and then they're talking all the time. It's like, you would have been a good cowboy too, Hans. And Hans like, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then they start laughing. Yeah, they all start laughing. It's like, first he's, like, John starts laughing. And then Hans like, that is pretty funny, starts laughing. And the other guy's like, well, if everyone else is laughing, I guess I gotta laugh too. And then, meanwhile, Holly's just like, you're all crazy. Yeah. Finally, uh, Hans Gruber starts falling out of the building. Uh, well, Hans Gruber's killed. He's not dead yet. Not, he's, well, he's, he's, he's shot, shot and he falls. Yeah. Yes. He starts falling, grabs onto Holly, and this is where we get the actual Chekhov's gun. I thought the bear was going to be the Chekhov's gun my first time watching. The actual Chekhov's gun is Holly's watch, which is mentioned in passing in the beginning, yep. saying she got a golden Rolex for the deal that she completed well, earlier that day. It, it's some weird thing where the Rolex is supposed to represent their failing marriage, and then by him using that to kill Hans Gruber, it saves the relationship. I actually think it was more an idea of Ellis as a gift, because Ellis was trying to get with Holly. That is very true. The but guy, Ellis is dead, so I don't think that watch matters not, not anymore. Not anymore, no. No. It was definitely the idea of the watch showed her commitment to her work more so than her marriage and to her co-workers like Ellis. Mm-hmm. And then throwing away the watch to kill a terrorist shows how much she actually loves John. Also, fun fact for this scene, they didn't tell Alan Rickman that they were going to drop him. Yeah, he was in the harness, so, and it was like, well, on the count of three, we're going to drop you. And he's like, okay, one, drop him. <laughs> yeah, and so that look of fear in his eyes in that scene was legitimate terror, because he thought something went completely wrong. I really like that. Uh, so yeah, that is Die Hard. Not quite, Not because qu- they get down to the bottom, oh, right, the rush yes. is fixed. Alice drives out, and doesn't immediately get shot by the police for some reason. <laughs> Crashes out of the parkade, and... Uh, oh, Alice, uh... Argyle. Argyle, yeah. And the reporter comes over, tries to get uh, words from Holly, and uh, Holly just decks him in the face. We also skipped over the one other thing that happens, which is Al has had this uh, plotline so far where he explains that he didn't want to work the streets anymore, wanted to work the desk, had a bit of an accident. He has a penchant for shooting children and he can't stop. Yeah, John makes fun of him for his accident, saying he probably like ran over the chief's dog, and he's like, nope, shot a child, can't pull my gun anymore. Uh, And he's like, oh, fuck. And then... Right as John and Al are, like, saying hello and, oh, thanks for getting me through this, buddy. 
the Which terrorist... also, John starts crying because he meets Al. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The secondary antagonist from earlier, whose only goal in this entire movie has been to kill John, now comes walking out of the building after being hung on chains earlier. Yeah. Uh, and starts pulling his gun, to which Al immediately gets over his child murder fear, because that guy right there, definitely not a child. Very clearly a full-grown <laughs> man. Uh, no chance I can fuck this up. And pulls, accidentally shoots one of John's kids. Pulls his gun and kills the fucking terror. Which, another fucking thing, this man was hung with the gun in his hand, and they clearly had to unhang this man, bring him down, but never thought to remove the fucking gun from his hand. Yeah. Clearly. So, that is Die Hard. Yep, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, after uh, that man, Al, overcame his uh, habit of shooting children, it really changed the Urkel show. Yeah. Drive off into the sunset in a broken limousine that Argyle is driving for them. Oh, not sunset, sunrise. It's morning now. Yeah. Yep. It was a crazy Christmas. So, do, do we get into it now? <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's the Die Hard movie. It's definitely, like, probably one of the top ten action movies of all time, and it really shifted. It was really in the 80s here where we started seeing the action heroes become more grounded and realistic and care about what they were doing. So we see this with uh, Riggs and Murtaugh and Lethal Weapon and Tequila and Hard Boiled, uh, both yeah. action movies that came out this time. So it was definitely a shift. This is one of the first ones that did it. It definitely humanized action heroes a lot more. Before this, they were gods of destruction who walked through the battlefield killing anything that got in their way. Now they became a lot more human of characters. Yeah. Which I definitely think was a positive shift for the genre as a whole. But yes. Because we have superhero now movies now, and they are actual superheroes. And grounded, funny enough. Yeah. The main issue with this movie is a silly little debate that has started on the internet that we're gonna fucking resolve today. So I'm not sure if we'll resolve it. because We will going, resolve it. It's been going on ever since the movie came out. It so has not been going on since the movie came out. So, it has. I guess before we get into this, there's a few things I want to just address with you guys. So... The big thing comes down to what makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie, I find, with this argument. So before we get into why it doesn't or doesn't does fit these requirements, what do you guys feel is required for a Christmas movie? Well, I feel a Christmas movie really helps if it takes place around Christmas. It doesn't have to, but it really does help. And most Christmas movies typically have the theme, a big prevalent theme, of family and togetherness and relationships and cherishing the bonds that you have. So, I would argue, not necessary for a Christmas movie, but a strong positive point for a Christmas movie is dealing with the meaning of Christmas, whether whatever the movie believes the meaning of Christmas is. But if there's a character trying to look into what the meaning of Christmas is, or another character explains the meaning of Christmas, then that has uh, makes the Christmas movie. If the fact, or if Christmas somehow drives the plot forward, then that makes it a Christmas movie. If Christmas has no impact on the plot, then I don't think it's a Christmas movie. Uh, and it has to pertain to the traditional Christmas values that all, or not all Christmas movies, but most Christmas movies have some form of the idea of togetherness or family or charity that it focuses on as an idea for the movie. So are you saying that for both of you, that it has to have all those requirements or just some of those requirements? It, I would say some of those. I'm not saying it has to have everything, because then no movie is a fucking Christmas movie unless it's (laughs) one specific movie. Uh, But I would say that having none of them definitely makes it not a Christmas movie. Yeah, it's like, uh, for instance, there is a movie I found out, It's a Wonderful Life. It was released around Christmas time, but 
was not intended to be a Christmas movie whatsoever. And I do believe... Was it that movie? On a yeah. I know yeah, it's it, very much considered a it's Christmas one, movie. It's, I, it's, it's very much a Christmas movie that my family watches every It's considered year. a Christmas movie. It was never intended to be a Christmas movie. And there's never any Christmas day in the movie. And most of it doesn't even happen in December. I mean, it takes place over the course of several years. Yeah. The main like plot thing is that it takes place on Christmas itself. Because it's all about the fact that uh, this guy is not making enough money and he lost all his money and he's going to lose his job and he's not going to be able to provide gifts or anything for his family for Christmas. And the main like crux of the movie, the climax, is him deciding not to kill himself and that the world is better with him in it. And then a whole bunch of other people provide him with gifts and food for Christmas so he can still celebrate with his family. Yeah, but even the director said that he had never intended for it to be a Christmas movie. It was more a movie just about a man who thought he was down on his luck and didn't have anything in the world, and then he was shown otherwise. Uh, now, for a few other things that I've seen people mention that like are kind of requirements for Christmas movies, uh, one of them has been, uh, I've seen quite a bit, is that has Santa involved in some capacity? Not necessary. Uh, another one is that has Christmas music. Helpful, but also, again, not necessary. Now, uh, one thing fun. I, so, I would argue on that point, has Santa, once again, helpful, but not necessary. Christmas? Has Christmas music? Can be helpful, but also does not make a Christmas because movie. Because Christmas music certainly does help to set the mood for Christmas. Well, the other issue, too, is, like, some songs are, like, do you consider them Christmas songs, even though they're not necessarily, for example, some people would argue that Joyful, Joyful, Ode to Joy, whatever, is a Christmas song. Because a lot of, like, mm -hmm. classical Beethoven stuff gets played at Christmas time. Yeah. But is it really a Christmas song? In actuality, the song is not a Christmas song, but when used in a Christmas sense, just because it has that long connotation of being used for Christmas festivities. Yeah, that's one thing. In like, that there's situation, a lot of it is. Gray area in these requirements. Uh, now, I did go through, and here's a funny enough thing for you. I went through and looked for movies that met these requirements. So I took classic Christmas movies mm -hmm. and said, to see if they met any of these requirements. And I could find Christmas movies that didn't have anything to do with family togetherness. I found movies that weren't on Christmas that were Christmas movies. Funny enough, yeah. I even found movies that didn't tackle the meaning of Christmas or have Santa Claus. I could not find a goddamn movie that didn't have a quote-unquote Christmas song in it. Yeah. Just like, it's like, <laughs> it's a given that any Christmas movie released will have some sort of I went of through Christmas a shitload of Christmas, like, Christmas movies, and I got a list of them. I'm going to go over with you guys later on. But I could not find a single one without a Christmas song in it. And uh, I did come across a YouTube analysis video that went through and picked out in a couple different Christmas movies and Die Hard all of the different Christmas references, all the different Christmas carols, all the times someone ever mentioned Christmas. I would argue mentioning Christmas does not a Christmas movie no. make. Because a Me significant amount of movies mention the existence of Christmas without oh, yeah. being a Christmas movie. And well, uh, just, that just that YouTube video I want to mention, Die Hard by far beat all of the others in the amount of times Christmas and the festivities were mentioned and referenced and how many carols it had. Well, now that we've gone over, like, what kind of makes a Christmas movie, uh, let's get into what you guys think for this one. Your arguments on why or why yeah. not Die Hard fits now, in these categories, or even a Christmas movie in general. I'd argue that Die Hard really heavily fits into the Christmas tradition, or the Christmas movie tradition of togetherness and family i would argue that it doesn't because he's there fighting terrorists his goal is not to save holly until holly becomes a target of the terrorists his goal is to stop the terrorists until they discover that he's his wife i see the first shot of the movie opens up 
on Bruce Willis's wedding ring, and he's traveling to Los Angeles specifically to help fix his marriage and his relationship with his wife. I and, I agree he cares about his mm-hmm. wife, but I would say that the driving point of the f- movie is has nothing to do with his wife. If he happened to be in that building for unrelated reasons, like if he was Ellis's friend, he would have done things the exact same way he did. So yes, he initially came back to try and reconnect with his family, but he also admits that he has other options for being there. He could just as easily be staying with his best friend who told oh, yeah. him he has a house out there. Like True. The idea of him being there for his family is not a driving point of the movie. No, it's not a driving point, but he does say he specifically traveled out there because like, he was invited and he wanted to try to make the efforts. And also in his little heart-to-heart conversations he had with Al, the police officer, he even uh, comes to the realization how terrible he was not supporting Holly, and now he realizes just how bad of an individual he was, and now I mean, he's going to support her fully. To be fair, he gets we get less character growth from him than we do from Holly, in that in the beginning, Holly explains that she's going by Holly Gennaro because it's weird to be a married woman working for a Japanese company. And by the end, she explains that her name is actually Holly McLean, not mm-hmm. Holly Gennaro, when the reporter tries to question her. So we see more of her growing to change her views than we see him doing anything other than saying he's going to change his views. Like, we don't see him actually take any action towards changing his stance on her. We do see her taking actions towards changing her stance. Yeah, we don't see any actions to him doing it because, well, he's the action hero. It's not his place in the movie to have, like, the actions of being a family. That's where the end scene comes in. He's together with her. They've reconciled. And just how close they're together and holding each other in each other's arms. It's supposed to symbolize them coming together and solving their differences. And that whole heart-to-heart with him and Al, Al revealing that he shot a kid and all that, is kind of their redemption of, I guess, their po- their past troubles and mistakes. Okay. Do you have other points for why this is a Christmas movie beyond the fact that he reconciles with his wife over the course of the movie? Uh, yeah. Because I would argue a significant portion of action movies start with a broken family. Oh, yeah. And them reconciling and it having nothing to do with Christmas. No, no, I'm, I'm not arguing that. I'm just yes. arguing that that's a huge driving factor of this movie, and that helps to lend to the credibility of this being a Christmas movie. Regardless of it being a Christmas movie, I would agree with that a good part of this plot does have to deal with his relationship with his wife. Even though it's not handled in the best or uh, focused for the most of the movie, yeah. it is a driving plot for the character of John McClane over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Because he's there, sure, it's his job as a police officer to help Dolo Justicens protect the innocent, but he's also there as Holly's wife to protect... Or, he's there as Holly's husband to protect his wife. But, um, uh, also, this movie would have been incredibly different if it didn't take place on Christmas Eve. So uh, how so? So that was actually something I was going to ask here because I I would argue it would not be significant. There are one of the, I didn't mention one of the requirements and this is a requirement that I tend to believe is actually a very important one for determining this Christmas movie. If you remove Christmas from the movie, does the movie not work anymore? So I feel mm-hmm. like you're getting into that now. Yeah. So that's a requirement I believe is actually very important for a Christmas movie. That is an argument I also had prepared except my argument was that you could remove Christmas from this movie and it would not change anything about the movie. Now, I do have to specify one thing. So, for removing Christmas, that doesn't mean that the character's plans change. So, for example, if when we're going into this argument, you cannot change what is required for Hans Gruber's plan to work. Yep. So, you have to keep that in mind when you're changing. Yeah. So, you can explain that there's multiple ways for uh, 
John to be there, which definitely there are. Any holiday party, any day of the week where there's an event going on for Holly, of course you can explain why he would show up there. Mm-hmm. The big thing that you're going to have to try to change around here is Hans Gruber's plan. I would say that Hans Gruber's plan is revolving entirely around the fact that it is Christmas. Because In what way? He specifically chose Christmas Eve because of the party that they were planning, because the building would be understaffed, so less security, and the only people there, aside from the one security guard, would be all of the employees there for Christmas parties, so ample selected selection of hostages. See, I would argue that it could happen on any of the federal holidays when the business would be closed and he could just as easily plan around that. If they knew that they were working on a big sale, he could easily find out the fact that they're working on a big sale and they're going to be celebrating a big sale. So long as that sale is happening around any other holiday, like let's say it's happening on 4th of July, business would be just as shut down. There would be just as few people. They could be having a 4th of July party there and it would be just as few people in the building and Hans Gruber could have had the exact same plan work out the exact same way. But also, counterpoint, um, uh, you know the movie Home Alone. You'd consider that a Christmas movie, right? Maybe. Because lots of people do, and it is considered a Christmas movie because it takes place in Christmas. That movie could take place at any time of the year, regardless of holiday or not, because the only driving force is that the main character is left home alone because his negligent family This one actually is different. Because the criminals in that case are once again planning a robbery, except they're not planning to burglarize a single building when they need to know a single family is going to go away. Their plan is to burglarize the entire block, so they need a specific time when everyone is going to be going on vacation. Yeah. That only works if yeah, there's a specific holiday when yeah, for his point, lots of people uh, would go on As holiday. I said, we have to be able to work Hans Gruber's plan into another date to take Christmas out. The Wet Bandit's plan revolves around Christmas because that's the time that this whole area is going away. Uh... I'm trying to think, of, is there another holiday where you can make an argument where lots of people would go away on the same block? But also, in the movie, it mentions that, uh, like, it's a Japanese company, and Bruce didn't even believe or think that they celebrated Christmas in Japan. And again, they mentioned it was a party to celebrate Holly. Yep. So, but also it was set up as a Christmas party. I just think that could have easily been, like, a 4th of July party for the business, and you could have had yeah. the exact same circumstances. But again, since it's a Japanese company, why would they bother celebrating? Well, now, any... uh, Peter, I do have to point out one thing about the security guards. They do mention in the movie that uh, the security guards are light that day because it's Christmas specifically. And uh, if you know about how security shifts things work, where Christmas is kind of a togetherness holiday, that's why they're working short staff of security, where any other holiday, if there was staff in the building... Could hypothetically have full staff. Yeah. It could, because... but at the same time, if it's any uh, federal holiday when businesses are shut down, it's just as likely that the business yeah. would be as empty as it is on Christmas. Because uh, one thing I just point out, because I have worked in private security, private security does not have holidays. Just like no. police don't have holidays and emergency crews don't yeah. have holidays. So security would be higher and there wouldn't be as many hostages for them to take, if any at all, at those holidays. I feel like this could have happened on any holiday that they were choosing to celebrate her big sale. Like, I think the driving force between the hostages being there is the sale and not the Christmas party. So I feel like them getting access to the hostages has less to do with it being Christmas. Like, they go out of their way to admit that they're more so celebrating her sale than they are celebrating Christmas. So it's not really a Christmas party. So you can't really argue that Christmas is the reason that the hostages are there. And if there aren't going to be people in the building, then there aren't going to be security guard to watch it as well. You're going to have a skeleton crew for an empty building, regardless of whether or not it's uh, 
holiday or not. Uh, they'd have security regardless of whether there's people there or not, just because there's valuables in the building, like a big vault. I mean, they let John McClane walk in completely unguarded. <laughs> they're not too concerned about having people walk in and rob They're understaffed for a Christmas party. I, yeah. uh, I have thought about this as well. There is one other day that I feel does work with Hans Gruber's plan. New Thanks. Year's. I feel like any other holiday, you can't really argue Hans Gruber's plan, because most other holidays, security don't really tend to... There's not that together-with-people feel. So if it was I October, would argue like Valentine's Thanksgiving Day... Thanksgiving is also another together-with-people holiday that security would But I feel like lessen. Christmas is the big strong one that you can justify yeah. and you say there's going to be skeletons proof for security in the building and there'll be people in the building celebrating. Yeah. The only other holiday that that fits with, though, I feel, if you were to do it, is New Year's. I feel like every other holiday, it's kind of hard to argue that both those requirements be met. Thanksgiving, it's not really a celebrate with coworkers and people, it's family. And also, this international company, Thanksgiving might not fall as heavily on that radar, because different countries celebrate Thanksgiving at different times. But there's two holidays that are about celebrating togetherness, uh, but that would explain why it would be shorter on security, because they're not expecting anything to happen. But also, would have people in the building to celebrate, and that's Christmas and New Year's. Which both fall in the Christmas holidays. Once again, it... The fact that it's a Christmas party is not why the people are in the building, so that's not really a requirement for them to have I feel like, to plan it. I feel like the requirement for Han's plan to work specifically is a day yeah. when there would not be many people in the building, so there's not as much security. Because, yeah. as I've said, they're very lax on security, and I don't think that's because they have a skeleton crew. If you have a skeleton crew, you wouldn't be more likely to let people in. You'd be more concerned about letting people in, and you'd be more heightened security. The fact that they're lax on security means that they're not too concerned about anything happening, which means that they aren't too concerned about people robbing it. And if they have a skeleton crew, then they would be more likely to be worried about people trying to break in than less likely to be worried about people breaking in. So the fact that they act so lack on security leads me to believe that they would have light security on any time the building's empty. You're going to have a skeleton crew in the middle of the night if there's nobody in the building. You're not going to have a full security crew just because it's the middle of the night. You're going to have less people than you are going to have during the daytime. So there's going to be less people any time of the year. If they schedule it properly, they just needed the hostages there was the main thing that Hans Gruber needed. Hostages there when there wasn't a full building full Yeah, exactly. It means limited security, uh, small amount of staff that can be used as hostage, but just enough that there's a threat and that the FBI would be involved. Also, I guess another thing to specify is you would need someone, It wasn't as we find it wasn't required, but someone with the code for the vault yes. was needed for mm-hmm. the first step of the plan to possibly remove the rest of the plan. Mm-hmm. And I think Takagi was the only person that had the password. Yes, Takagi was definitely. So it would also be something that would expect him to be there for. Yeah, so something big like uh, well, I mean, celebration as an of argument, that big sale and the Christmas holidays, but for the Christmas As an party. argument, then it makes less sense for them to do it on Christmas because Takagi specifically says that he doesn't celebrate Christmas. He's only celebrating the big sale. So unless they knew that there was a big sale happening, it's less of an excuse for Takagi to be there for a Christmas party. So it's more likely that they would have him there for a different kind of staff party that wasn't happening on Christmas itself. But also, they didn't need the code, so they didn't need him there. I know. I'm just saying, if you're saying one of the requirements is Takagi be there, Christmas is less of an excuse for Mm -hmm. that to happen. But the movie would turn out differently in the whole setup of the whole situation without it taking place during that Christmas party. Because they would have had to handle the security differently. I just feel like changing it to a different holiday could easily... Like, they could have easily written that, not to keep harping on this one day, but as a 4th of July party without needing to change too much. Like, it's already taking place in L.A. They don't need to change the weather that's happening or anything like that. They don't need to explain away people not being there because the building's still under construction. 
So most of the floors aren't fucking occupied anyways. Uh, that's already explaining away why there's not a lot of people. Like, I don't think it needs to happen during Christmas for the plot to work out the way that it does. Uh, now, another thing I didn't want to point out, and this was people that are making the argument of it being a Christmas movie that I found was a quite interesting thing that I never really thought about myself. But a lot of Christmas movies tend to end with snow. Yes. And some people have made the argument that the bear bonds falling at the end is to represent the snow yes. falling to end a Christmas movie. all the white papers falling from the sky is very reminiscent and uh, kind of symbolic of the traditional Christmas snow that always plays at the end of Christmas movies. So I guess I would put, I put that in a list of, like, that's another thing some people will say is a requirement for Christmas movie, though. Not every Christmas movie ends with snow at the Can end. I... It's not a requirement, but it's always a nice touch for a Christmas movie. As a question of my own, uh, if you were to release a Christmas movie, what time of year would you release it? Uh, Christmas movie? Generally, you'd want to release it closer to December, but it depends on... Because different genres of movies do different better in different times of the year. And we do have Christmas movies that are released outside yeah. based on the genre. For example, around Christmas time, it tends to be the family movies and the romance movies around Christmas mm -hmm. that get released. Comedies tend to get closer to the summer period along with action movies. All I'm saying is Die Hard was released on July 15th, which is the middle of the summer. Yeah, also, which Counterpoint, is... Miracle on 34th Street, a Christmas movie, also came out in May. Once again, that's closer to winter than middle of the <laughs> summer. May is the tail end of winter, beginning of spring. May? Or the last couple of years when we get a blizzard here. We've gotten blizzards well <laughs> into May. May is the end of spring. Oh, fuck. I confused May and March right there. That's what I, I did too. It was March that the blizzards happened. Yes. Uh, so I suppose that Christmas movies can happen. I would argue that if you're going to make a Christmas movie, you wouldn't release it in the middle of summer. Uh, it does happen, though. It, it, does, happen. it does happen. I would say that that is definitely a point against it, though. If you're going to make a Christmas movie and you want to have a point of it taking place during Christmas, it's more likely that you would release it around Christmas time. Now, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take the point away, though, because other Christmas movies that are actually designated as Christmas movies have been released outside of the Christmas season. Now, Another point oh. against it is the fact that the director of the movie has come out and said that when they were creating it, it was never intended to be a Christmas movie. So, that was what I was going to ask. The director himself has said it's not a Christmas movie in a tent. The director he, said it, that, Bruce Willis said that, but also the writers of the movie did say that it was a Christmas <laughs> movie. So you get ahead of me, because I was also going to bring that up after this discussion, because I did some searching itself, and the writers on the story said they wrote it specifically to be a Christmas story. Sure. <laughs> I would argue that the director has a lot more control over what type of movie you're getting than the writers the, do. The director has control over how the movie is filmed, but the writers, they're the ones putting in all the messages in the writing and the scripts. So this kind of gets into a conversation of, there's obviously two different forms of intent going in. Another good movie to classify that we've had this issue have come up is Blade Runner, where uh, the director is... Uh, Harrison Ford's character is a replicant. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But Harrison Ford's like, that's stupid. That doesn't make sense. He's not a replicant. It ruins the movie. <laughs> I would argue, based on the stuff that's in the movie, which the director has final say over, that he's definitely a replicant. You get lots of hints towards him but being we do, a replicant. But we get a sequel that disproves that, too, as well. The yeah. sequel is <laughs> non-canonical in my mind. But also, the director was directing an action movie. The, action, the movie is an action movie, yes, but the writers have written in a Christmas movie story. And we know that intent, regardless of where it's coming from, even on a project like this, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the final uh, yeah. a, a consensus on it. So how far does like what the director intends versus what the person that's viewing like, intends? I mean, again, we could all come out and agree that 
The Hangover is a Christmas movie. That doesn't make it a Christmas yeah, movie. But bringing back what I said before, A Wonderful Life, the director <laughs> never intended for that to be a Christmas movie. Yet it is uh, thought by all to be a Christmas movie. Yes, I would agree with that. All I'm saying is the fact that we all agree that something is a Christmas movie doesn't make it a Christmas no. movie. Because we can all go home right now and agree that Rambo's a Christmas movie. That does not make Rambo a Christmas movie. Yeah, I'm not going to agree to that one. <laughs> I'm saying we could theoretically, though. Could and it theoretically. Make... There's a lot of red. So the fact that one person decides, or all the internet agrees that something's a Christmas movie does not make it a Christmas movie. No. But it does help that uh, viewings for Die Hard spike specifically that's because in the Christmas of the, season. That's because of the dumb internet argument that it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> People are doing that as a fucking joke, and it's skewing the fucking numbers. <laughs> Our podcast is going to make people watch it during Christmas. That doesn't make it a Christmas movie. Yeah, I watched it during this time. I watched it like a couple days ago. Oh, people are going to see watched it during Christmas. People are going to see we released an episode about Die Hard on December twenty eighth, and they're like, "Oh, we should rewatch Die Hard." That does not make it a fucking Christmas movie. Now, to be fair, I will be. I mean, I'm good. Like again, I for me, the importance of Die Hard being a Christmas movie or not is does not matter to me. But I do tend to watch it in the winter months. <laughs> mm. That's not through like some sort of ritual or something I need to do. It's just I always just remember that Die Hard exists around that time. Yeah. It's like, and my family always watches it in the Christmas months because like, we always count it as a Christmas tradition because it does contain what is necessary for a Christmas movie. It has the themes of family, togetherness, being uh, generous, helping others when they How need it. How does it contain generosity? Bruce Willis is risking his life. For saving these people. I'd say that's pretty generous. He's risking his life to save his own life. He's already addressed that he can't leave the building. And specifically says to Hans Gruber over the radio, I will leave if you unlock the front doors for me. And Hans Gruber says no. Except he won't Bruce, leave because his wife is there. He'll leave and go call the cops and get them to address it. That has been his plan in the beginning. Once the cops show up and they get killed by the terrorists, he now decides he has to stay and resolve the situation himself. And but so you're the, also rejecting the fact that the scene... Or the movie opens up on his wedding ring and the fact that he's going there to resolve his relationship Oh, I agree problems. he's going there to resolve his relationship issues. I just don't mm -hmm. think him being put in that situation counts as generosity. Every one of the moves he makes in the beginning is him trying to save his own life. He even addresses he could have tried to save Takagi, but he would have died and he chose not mm -hmm. to to save his own life. That's not generosity. If he wanted to save his own life, all he would have had to do is nothing. And he would have been fine. I just don't think him... Well, well until the C4 blew up the roof. Until the C4 blew up the roof. But he didn't have to be up there. That's true. I just don't think there's actually a case for you to say that there's actually any form of generosity in that movie. Him risking his life is him being an action hero, not him being generous with his life. And Argyle. Argyle being generous to uh, John McClane, being like, okay, I'll help you out if... Argyle specifically says he's doing that because he wants a better tip for his first shift. Better tip, yes. <laughs> but he also risks his own job in... Uh, Drinks all the alcohol in the back of the car. Almost killing a man who may have he been a terrorist. He drinks all the alcohol in the back of the car, which is not his to fucking drink. That's straight up theft. That's yeah. not generosity. But he almost kills a guy. Because he's <laughs> fucking drunk. Because also, killing a guy is not being generous. <laughs> I do like the fact that it's like... He's risking his... He almost kills a guy. He's risking his own job for the safety of others and to make sure the terrorists can't he... get away. So, in that case, where everyone has made points on why it is a Christmas movie or it is a Christmas movie, I figured the only way to determine which of you has the best arguments uh, is to see who can best identify actual Christmas movies. <laughs> so, what I've done is, to make this a little bit fair, I'm going to be reading off 
fully described plot synopsis of different movies, and you have to tell me if they are an action movie, an action movie, uh, a movie, or a Christmas movie. So we're going to determine by whoever has the most points at the end. So you get a point for telling me if it's a Christmas movie or not correctly. You get a bonus point if you can name the movie. All right. Well, that's going to be hard. A new person joins a community of friends, and one of them starts to feel ostracized, leading to conflict. It certainly sounds like it could be the start of a Christmas movie, depending on the setting. I would agree it's a Christmas movie. I don't know which one it is. They're both saying Christmas movie? Yeah. And no guess on what movie? I could guess The Grinch. That was Toy Story 1. Oh. <laughs> which does have a Christmas scene in it, but not a Christmas movie. So The Grinch was also ostracized, because he was different. <laughs> in the uh, Jim Carrey version, anyway. <laughs> A bunch of teams have a memorable Christmas night. Teams? Teens. Teens. That sounds kind of like a horror movie also. I'm going to say that's not a Christmas movie, but it is in fact Gremlins. Gremlins, yeah. So, it is considered a Christmas movie by many. It's Black Christmas, which is also notorious for being the first slasher movie. Okay. I did get the horror aspect right, though. Yeah. So, in that movie, it's a bunch of teens in a uh, sorority house that are stalked by a person uh, who specifically kills on Christmas. Uh, and in that one, it's the first slasher person uh, in movie history. Also, uh, a little side note for you, that is also one of the Christmas movies that do not have any appearance of Santa Claus in it. But it does have Christmas music and uh, some stuff on the meaning of Christmas. Next one. A man examines his life and, with a stranger, talks out the life moving forward. Uh, is a Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, but it is not a Christmas movie, because <laughs> it was not meant to be a Christmas movie, going by Peter's logic in this whole thing. By your semantics, Matt, I, I do in part, uh, admire that gusto, but it is kind of consensusly a Christmas movie by argument online. <laughs> so that is, both of you get the point for naming the movie correctly, but Peter does get the one for naming his Christmas movie. I'm just going to stand on my double point for that for, uh, Clarity and going by Peter's logic for that point. A couple must learn to live with each other after a lie comes true forth. Not a Christmas movie, no idea what movie it is. No, that sounds like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, though, to an extent. Is that your guess for the movie? Sure. And are you guessing Christmas movie or not Christmas? Guessing not Christmas movie. Okay. Uh, he is correct, but it's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> nice. A man must learn to live a life alone for the first time on Christmas Eve. I think that is a Christmas movie. It sounds familiar. I can't place the name. Uh, I'm also going to say it's a Christmas movie. I'm not familiar with what the movie itself is. Well, no points awarded. It is not a Christmas movie. It is Rambo First Blood. Okay. <laughs> All right. I've never watched Rambo, so uh, I wouldn't know. Only one person dies. Hmm. It's not The first Rambo is actually more of a drama, not an action movie. Salone did a lot of dramas that ended up becoming action movies. A father and son remember and reminisce on their relationship and take a family trip to the mountains. I'm going to say it is a Christmas movie. I'm not familiar with the movie. I'm not familiar with that movie whatsoever. I'm going to say no. No for Christmas movie, and you're saying yes for Christmas movie? Yeah. But no guess on the movie? No guess no. on the movie. So it is The Shining. Fuck. And it is not a Christmas movie. Another movie I have not seen because uh, horror and all that. <laughs> Lovely. Down on, a luck, uh, uh, down on his luck man mentors a child. And we'll just put in parentheses there poorly. 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of picked up that from the just the synopsis. <laughs> is a Christmas movie is Bad Santa. I was going to say is a Christmas movie. I have no idea what the name is. Okay, so it is a Christmas movie. It is Bad Santa. Okay. Two men are tortured uh, by a series of traps and puzzles and must survive the night. Home Alone is a Christmas movie. Yep. <laughs> yes. To be fair, that also is the synopsis for Saw. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's my, that was my first thought. <laughs> Two men must battle for the fate of their children. Two men must battle for the fate of their children? That's it? Yeah, over the course of a day. Over the course of a day. I'm going to say no. Is a cri- I have no idea. Is a Christmas movie. Is Jingle All the Way. You were correct. Oh my god. Is Jingle All the Way. <laughs> a man must survive the night and fight off all spectral assailants. Oh, that's uh, is a Christmas movie. Christmas is a movie. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, yeah. Nope, it's uh, Room fourteen oh eight with David Cusack. Oh, fuck Cusack. that movie. <laughs> huh. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see here. A talented janitor teaches troubled youths to believe in their dreams. Is a Christmas movie. Isn't a Christmas movie. Don't know which one. Don't know the name. It isn't a Christmas movie. It's Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, that's one way of describing <laughs> Freddy. <laughs> Another movie I've never seen because horror. I feel this is stacked against me. Uh, to be fair, well, there's only been two horror movies in this list so far. Three. Three? Uh, Black Christmas. Black Christmas. Shining. Oh, yeah, The Shining. Eh, I never really consider it. Also, Room 408, I would kind of consider a horror movie. Three friends have a party to end all parties. Isn't a Christmas movie is Project X, if that's sounds, what it's called? Sounds like Recipe for Disaster. I'm going to say not a Christmas movie. I guess for the movie? No. The Night Before, considered a Christmas movie. Considered, so, but is it? Yep, yeah, so it's a movie about three friends who are having, they have an annual party each year on Christmas Eve. Oh, I know that fucking movie. And yeah, one of them is having a kid, so they decide to have one last party and oh. do a bunch of drugs. The end of a stuff. Oh, I see. And so essentially, it's them finding the meaning of family and Christmas, essentially. Okay. A man to save his career must find a partner and will stop at any lengths to get them. Oh, that sounds so familiar. Is a Christmas movie is specifically the Santa Claus 2, the Mrs. Claus. <laughs> right. Yep. Definitely a Christmas movie. Now, for this one, I do want to point out that the reason I put this one in here is the Santa Claus 2 is considered a Christmas movie, but also meets none of the requirements for Christmas yeah, movies. Yeah, none. Yep. None whatsoever. Except I mean, it features Santa. That's the only one. <laughs> features Santa, happens during Christmas, and... Uh, Fucks a lot of women. Yeah, that yeah. too. <laughs> Involves family, but not in a good light. Yeah. Not in a good light at all. Kind of a rapey light for family. A, <laughs> a man accused of a crime must rely on a child to prove his innocence. Raise your hand when you have your answer, because I realize we've been doing this a little bit weird, which causes some ties. So when you have an answer, raise your hand, and then we're going to hear both of them. Yeah. Um, uh, what was the... Read that again. A man accused of a crime must rely on a child to prove his innocence. Okay. Christmas movie or not Christmas movie? No. Yes. Movie? Santa Claus. Don't know. So, it is a Christmas movie. But it is Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, that works. A bullied child is discarded by society and then realizes he can use his gift to help others. Okay. Christmas movie or not? Not Christmas not. movie. What movie? Don't know. Mastermind. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, I said child, child threw me off. Like, oh, <laughs> yep. Of course. Right. He was a kid. Well, like I, said, I tried to make these as neutral yeah. as possible to not give away if they're on either end. Okay. Yeah. A man dealing with the death of his parents must find a way to better his city over the holidays. I'm going to say is, but I can't place the title because I've seen too many sappy Christmas movies with 
that same synopsis. Isn't Batman Forever. Close. Batman Returns. Oh, huh. Because Batman Returns is the only one that takes place on Christmas. Yeah, I was trying to remember if it was Returns or Forever that <laughs> takes place on Christmas. Forever has Mr. Freeze. Yeah, that's what threw me off. Two teens find themselves together and find love and magic on Christmas Eve. Sorry, say that one more time. Or... Two teens find themselves stuck together and find love and magic on Christmas Eve. I'm going... I don't know the title. I'm just going to say no because you're saying expressly Christmas Eve and you're trying to stay neutral. I'm also going to say no. So, you guys already made a stance on this one, but Gremlins, and online it is considered a Christmas movie. That's fair. We both what? took our stance and said Gremlins was a Christmas movie. It's considered a Christmas movie online? Yep. From what I've seen online, it is not considered a Christmas movie. It, it, there are people that specifically the arguments against Gremlins is that it's a horror movie and it can't be a Christmas movie, but that doesn't really work because Christmas no. is more of a blanket of a movie and yeah. not really a genre. Because any genre can fit into it. Exactly. We learn the meaning of Christmas between... An Adventure of Brothers. Again, I don't know the name, but I am going to say it is a Christmas movie. I'm going to say it isn't a Christmas movie, and I'm going to guess Four Brothers. And do you have a guess for the movie? No. Okay. It isn't a Christmas movie. It's Life of Brian. Monty Python. Ah, that works. The meaning of Christmas is Jesus. Yeah, but you specifically said the meaning of Christmas, and a Christmas movie has to involve, like, finding the meaning of Christmas or such in some way. The meaning of Christmas is basically Jesus, though. That's the, the trick I was playing on you. With yeah, they're not of... actually searching for the meaning of Christmas, they're searching for Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Two unlikely strangers find love, but can they survive their families and the cold? It's like I'm getting better at this as I go through. Or worse. <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> I'm in charge of the points, Matt. I know, I know. I'm gonna say it's not a Christmas movie. I'm gonna... Say it's not a Christmas movie, even though it feels weird given the guess I have for the movie. Okay, and what are the movies you I think? Don't know. Four Christmases? No guess? No guess. It's not a Christmas movie, it's Titanic. Ah! Okay. <laughs> ah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a family terrorizes all that they meet, and not everyone will survive. Okay. Alright, I'm going to guess it is a Christmas movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm going also to guess guessing it is a Christmas National movie. Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I don't have a guess for the movie. It is National Anthem. Hell yeah. <laughs> I put that specifically because I'm, I'm pretty sure the cat dies. Yes. Very, very violently. This is my favorite uh, one I have written down for uh, like poorly describing a movie. Terrorist destroys town to show the corruption of capitalism. Uh, destroys town. To show the corruption of capitalism. Okay. Um, is a Christmas movie. Yep. So we're both saying it is. Yep. Okay. And I'm going to say it's The Grinch. I'm going to say it's Santa Claus 3. It is The Grinch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to tally up these points here. So for some of the movies, these are movies that neither of you guessed correctly. So you guys did not guess for Christmas movies, Black Christmas, Gremlins, The Night Before, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I honestly thought you guys were going to get. Fair. Yeah, the, the child part threw me off. The movies you uh, guessed were Christmas movies and weren't were Batman Returns, uh, 1408, First Blood, and Toy Story. Yep. So that's eight incorrectly guessed. For movies that Peter only got correctly, we have It's a Wonderful Life, Jingle All the Way, Nightmare on Elm Street, you guessed correctly that it wasn't a Christmas movie, Miracle on 34th Street, and Life of Brian. 
For Matt, we had correctly guessed Mr. Mitha Smith, The Shining, and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And for shared points, we have Bad Santa, Home Alone, Santa Claus 2, Titanic, and The Grinch. So overall, let's take a look here. So that's five points solely for you for guesses. We have... Four solely for me. Four solely for you. And four shared points. So let's see here. That's nine currently to you. And eight, eight, eight to me. To so let's go through and see which ones you guessed correctly for the movie. Matt got Mr. Mr. Smith correct. He got National Lampoon's correct. And he got The Grinch correct. Yes. So that's 11 for Matt. Uh, for this, you correctly guessed Santa Claus too. Yep. No one got Titanic. Home Alone and Bad Santa. I think we both got Home Alone correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did get Bad, bad Santa. Okay, so Bad Santa and then both of you point for Home Alone. So that's 12 for Matt and that's 12 for me now too. Oh, that's funny. Uh, for these two, I did guess both movies. I think Matt also got It's a Wonderful Life. I don't think he got Jingle All the Way, though. Yeah, I did not get Jingle All the Way. So that's 14 for me and 13 for Matt? Until the end of the year, right, maybe. And besides, the most important thing is going to be coming up, and that's my birthday episode. So before we get into the end for that, we're going to have our wind down here, as always. Yep. So, mm -hmm. first off, do we have any emails? No emails. No one's unfortunately guessed this episode correctly as of now, nor the last episode, any guesses since that were correct. And on top of that, we have no comments on the YouTube page as well. So, I think the only fitting question for the end of this episode to the audience is, do you think this movie is a Christmas movie? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or a Christmas adjacent movie? I think we know everyone's answers on that. Yes. I, I think all three of us agree with the audience, regard because we all know what the audience is going to say. We don't have to verbally say what the audience is going to say. <laughs> yep. We just all know what the audience is going to say and agree with it. Oh, okay. Nothing more will be said on this topic. <laughs> I'm, this neutral, topic I'm neutral, so I will agree with the audience wholeheartedly. No matter what, this topic will never be brought up by the three of us again. <laughs> I got unreasonably angry towards Matthew in the middle there. I will oh, be uh, honest with myself. <laughs> so, with that, do you guys have any suggestions for the audience between the last episodes? Uh, I'm going to recommend an actual Christmas movie, uh, which is Gremlins. <laughs> don't start questioning why I draw the line at Die Hard and not at Gremlins. Just don't. It's not worth your time. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to recommend something that's not a Christmas movie, because we're getting away from that and towards the new year. I'm going to recommend the movie 2012. <laughs> it wasn't oh. it wasn't the greatest movie, but it is just it is kind of fun to watch. Another and John Cusack movie too. My favorite thing about 2012 is that in like another decade we can try and convince children that it was a documentary and yeah, not fake. Because the neat thing about 2012 is that oh no the world's ending, which uh, <laughs> it's still kind of accurate it's up in the air right now. But at the end, there's a promise of a brighter future. So like next year kind of thing, maybe we'll see. Maybe a brighter future for this podcast where I stop hating Matthew at some point <laughs> in the future. So I actually have a Christmas movie as a recommendation, which now thinking about it, we're recording before Christmas, but by the time... Uh, this will come out on a couple days after Christmas, which is unfortunate. Yeah, but I was going to actually recommend the Jim Carrey, The Grinch movie. That is a phenomenal Christmas movie. Yes, it movie. is. And to be fair, it actually, it's fun to watch regardless anytime, because Jim Carrey just nails it completely. I always remember that scene of him doing yoga. <laughs> it's just like peak Jim Carrey to yeah. 
fantastic. Which has come back, thankfully, with the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Because Jim Carrey was peak Jim Carrey again in that movie. Yes, yes. absolutely. So, with that, of course, if you want to answer the questions that we've asked today, or you'd like to send us an email with any complaints, specifically to anyone who we might have disagreed with, or if you have a suggestion for what we should do an episode on, email us at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. It's about the way words normally are. Of course, we're also on YouTube and Instagram. Make sure to follow us. Give us a like, a comment, a star. You can say something that's ridiculous. You can even say something that doesn't make any sense. Five stars. Cured my diarrhea. Who knows? One star. Made love while listening to them. One star. Made too much sense and I don't like it. <laughs> one star. I dislike the voice of the one. You know which one I'm talking about. His voice. I dislike it. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Five stars. The Keith guy's pretty cool, but I don't know why he's talking to himself in three different voices. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, as already mentioned, uh, our next episodes that are going to be coming out, aside from the Wimpy Bite, is going to be my birthday episode, quickly followed by Peter's birthday episode. It's just going to be a bad month, let's be honest. <laughs> so for these ones... An interesting month. Yeah, that too. Uh, if you were listening to the last time this happened, we like to give a hint, but the other two people have no idea what the episode's going to be on, and they're going to have to be at the exact same point as all of you listeners at the time of it. Though I fear this time it might not be too difficult, because tune in next time where I explain to you all why busting makes me feel good. Are we talking about porn? <laughs> hmm. I think we are. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.